electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Mark Cordepeter, a leading biodefense expert and professor of epidemiology at the University of Nebraska College of Public Health. His latest book, Inside the Hot Zone, chronicles his work at the Army's Hot Zone Biological Warfare Defense Lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. Here's our conversation. I just finished reading your book, which which is really terrifying, and we didn't even give the subtitle, which is A Soldier on the Front Lines of Biological Warfare. Um, and in it, you really walk through um, what you call the chessmen of threats um, as bioweapons, which include plague, anthrax, botulism, smallpox, and Ebola, and other similar viruses. And to kind of tie this into the moment we're in now, in August, you wrote an article in Forbes uh, about whether this coronavirus makes a good bioweapon. Uh, conspiracy theories aside about whether it was one uh, that has been debunked, I believe. As horrible as it is, um, you assess that it doesn't make a good bioweapon. Just tell us about the, the characteristics of it and why not. Sure. And uh, I've actually written, uh, that's four, the fourth of uh, four articles I've written on Forbes about uh, sort of the aspects of bioweapon and uh, laboratory, et cetera, and, and coronavirus. If you look historically at the the large, uh, you know, uh, countries that had large bioweapons programs, the various properties that were looked at that kind of uh, were thought to be favorable as, uh, as bio, for bioweapons. So things like, first of all, you have to have access to it. Uh, you have to be able to grow it up in large quantities if you're going to release something across a battlefield or in a city or something like that for bioterrorism. And then uh, you have to have uh, – it has to be stable in the air because the air is the easiest way to release it over a population. And it has to be somewhat predictable, meaning uh, if, especially if you're going to use this in a weapon context, uh, if you have to take a, uh, take a hill or something as a military uh, use, then you have to be able to release it and – know that there's a predictable number of, or percent of individuals who would be infected. So something that has a high percent of illness amongst those infected is important. And then having, the, if there's going to be perpetrated by someone, having some type of protection for your own forces is important, especially with an agent that is contagious. So those are some of the properties that are uh consistent with the, the sort of so-called chest bit of doom you talked about, you know, anthrax, smallpox, et cetera. I will say that uh, coronavirus, probably some of these is not so good. In other ways, it's, it, it probably uh, fits the bill for something like contagiousness, for example, or accessibility currently. A lot of these other things like uh, has pretty low percentage mortality of uh, infection or illness in, uh, in individuals who are infected. Uh, comparatively to the, some of these other ones, uh, it's uh, there is no current vaccine for protection, and and this whole property of contagiousness really is a double-edged sword, because if somebody 
a perpetrator, a country releases it as a weapon. Well, as you see, once the genie gets out of the bottle, it's very hard to control, and it can even come back to impact one's own forces without some protective measure. So not not a good you know candidate for a bioweapon, but you also pointed out something sort of chilling in your piece. You said that it's reminded us of our vulnerabilities as a society to a new pathogen and how crippling a pandemic can be. You also say that you have no doubt that our adversaries have been taking notes on how challenging it's been for the U.S. to respond effectively. That's pretty scary. I mean, how do you think our response to COVID-19 has hurt us in terms of exposing our vulnerabilities to in in terms of biodefense in the future? Well, I think, you know, I think about, you know, that there's been a common analogy used that we're in this war against coronavirus, right? We're in a battle or a war. Uh, and if you think about, you know, what are some of the battlefield lessons that work not only in warfare, but also for fighting a pandemic, you, you really need unity of effort. This is one place, uh, challenge we've had in terms of being unit of, unity of effort and coordination of response. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the other big one is denying the enemy conceal and cover. And this comes down to testing. We have still had a problem with, with testing and getting, you know, enough tests or, you know, now there's mixed messages about who should be tested. But I think overall, I think we're very good in terms of the technological aspects of response. We have a, you know, the Operation Warp Speed has brought unity of effort in terms of scientific uh, development of both uh, vaccines and countermeasures and sort of that coordination, that response. But I think we've had less success in the diagnostic aspect. And in the public health aspect, I think this is the biggest challenge we've had is terms of not only a, a national strategy in terms of public health, but also, you know, as part of an important response is uh, sort of unity of communication. And, and we have a lot of mixed messages. We have pretty much every state doing whatever it, th- it thinks is the best. And unfortunately, the whole effort's been politicized, which has only complicated things. I think it's something like this. Government is very important for marshalling all the forces and then um, sort of bringing everybody in line and sort of leading the national strategy, which I think is what's been lacking overall. Mm. Well, that brings me to another sort of aspect of, of what you talk about in your book. You describe this phenomenon of the epidemiologic triangle where three things have to align to start an outbreak, the pathogen, the host uh, that can spread the pathogen, uh, and an environment that facilitates spread. And you point out that the third is the most important for triggering the chain reaction of an outbreak. Clearly here in the U.S., we have created a good environment for pathogens to spread. We have more than 30,000 cases, new cases every day, and that's in a trough period. So you know, what do you think is the most important thing we could do right now to get a handle on this? I do think uh, this uh, phenomenon of unity effort is really important. I think uh, one of the challenges we've had is that we do get mixed messages along the way. And even what we've had as well is some questioning of uh, what's happening in our own government institutions. The FDA comes out with some guidance then there's mistrust of the guidance. So I think it's very important for us to have uh, credibility of our government institutions. And the people I know, of course, I've, you know, I've worked in the government for 27 plus years in the military. And I know a lot of people who work in government are civilian, uh, you know, employees across the, across the world, uh, country. 
you know, the, these are folks who are really just trying to do their jobs every day. And I think it's very important that uh, we shore up these institutions as opposed to trying to uh, question the validity of the things they're coming up with. So I think the important thing is to let them do their job and let the response really be driven by science and the science of public health rather than uh, politicizing response. I think that's one of the most fundamental things we could do in terms of our unity of effort. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, do you observe, you know, as this pandemic has gone on, that, that it's gotten better or worse in terms of the unity of message coming from the top? I mean, just recently... With the example of the emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma, that was something the FDA backed. Uh, the commissioner was very criticized for overstating the benefits of, of convalescent plasma in a press conference with the president. And then the NIH came out and said the data don't support uh, use of convalescent plasma. So this kind of splintering among agencies just seems very disconcerting. How do you think we can fix that? Well, I do think, as you said, it, it to me, my, my observation is that it has gotten worse, and I think these the two you know the example you give is probably a great example. I think uh, the main th the way to do it is to let the folks in these positions who are leading these scientific institutions let let them do their job. I think there are various processes we have in place for new drugs, new vaccines that have borne the test of time, and they're in place for a reason because there have been errors in the history of some of the, uh, you know, just the new product development in terms of efficacy and safety. And so it's important uh, to let these folks do their jobs because I think when the politics start getting involved, the public gets mixed messages, the public gets confused. And then when the organizations come out with their recommendations, there's questioning of the, of the uh, you know, validity of their of their statements. And so unfortunately then that leads to mistrust of what what they're saying, which then is actually counterproductive to what perhaps may be, you know, the political political imperative, which is to try to get vaccines and, and treatments out there quickly. So essentially it backfires uh, if people don't actually trust the information coming out from these organizations. Well I want to ask you about one topic that's been in the news in the last couple of days, which is the idea of herd immunity uh, and a new advisor to the president, Scott Atlas, um, who was reported by the Washington Post this week that um, he's urging the White House to embrace this herd immunity strategy where essentially uh, that would allow the virus to infect as many young, healthy people as possible to build up immunity and to protect the older folks and people who are more vulnerable. Um, Scott Atlas has denied that he is uh, endorsing this approach. But what are your thoughts on herd immunity and that being an approach to this pandemic? Well, herd immunity really comes from the concept usually with vaccines that if you vaccinate a certain percentage of the population, you'll create enough people who are protected. And those people serve as ways essentially to block the transmission to other people who may not be protected or for whom you can't give a vaccine to. So it's been adopted in this discussion about coronavirus with the idea, as you said, if you get enough people infected, 
maybe those will end up protecting others. The challenge is, number one, as I said, once the genie comes out of the bottle and you sort of let this virus run rampant, it will run rampant. And even if you try to protect those individuals who are vulnerable, most vulnerable to complications, you know, people in nursing homes, people with uh, comorbid uh, conditions, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, you really don't necessarily control that. I have a father who is in a nursing home right now, 92 years old, and there have been individuals who've been infected in that nursing home, not the people who were residing there as you know residents of the home, but in the workers. And so this is the challenge. These workers have to go in and out. They go back to their families. They are in the community. So even if you're trying to protect these folks who are more vulnerable, it's hard to do it. Plus, a lot of them are living home. So the other thing, the argument is, well, if you let the you know, children, college students just get the infection, uh, then they'll help protect the rest of us. And that may be true to some degree. But the problem is those individuals also have families. You know, children go to school, they come back home, and they have grandpa living at home with them or even their parents or the teachers are, are at risk for high, uh, complications. The final point I'll make is that the other thing is we don't really fully understand this virus. It's certainly affects more than the lungs, and even in individuals who are not uh, showing symptoms with illness, it appears there are some measure of the population that actually still can have some damage caused by the virus. Uh, and, and some individuals who, who've gotten this infection, even though they survive, they can have long-term consequences with fatigue, headaches, skin skin rashes, things like that. So we really fully don't understand this virus. So it's not really something you want to just let run across the population. And finally, um, if you let herd immunity just sort of, you know, essentially let it run wild to gain herd immunity, let's say, you know, we have over 6 million cases now that we know of. Let's say it's five times that, maybe it's 30 million. That's still a small percentage of the population such that we've had what, over 180,000 deaths now. So you're going to have to multiply those numbers of deaths. So you're talking about, you know, somewhere between twice as many deaths up to over a million deaths. So are we really wanting that to happen? I don't think that's really the, the way we want to go with this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. One of the things I thought was really interesting in your book is you describe being in Kuwait in 2003 uh, in an effort to vaccinate soldiers there against botulism toxin. But one of the things you pointed out is that not everybody opted in to getting this vaccine, even though there was risk potentially from botulism toxin. And this was a potentially life-saving measure. And I just wonder how that kind of speaks to 
the reluctance we might see for people to take these vaccines. What was your reflection on why people didn't want to in that situation and how that might bode for what's to come here? You know, in terms of what was happening there, I do think, you know, there was still some residual from this concern about uh, the Gulf War One when people got anthrax and botulinum vaccines and sometimes didn't know what they were receiving. And there was concerns about whether those vaccines might have been linked to sort of Gulf War syndrome, even though those have been refuted. So I do think there was even some reluctance on the part of some of the soldiers who are going into potential bioweapons facilities, knocking down the doors. There was still concern even amongst those folks that maybe, uh, you know, the vaccines could be a problem. And of course, we we administered the vaccines, which were investigational, uh, meaning they were still under study with appropriate informed consent. I think, uh, you know, this is a challenge, though, for the U.S. in terms of vaccinating the population. And this is why it really is imperative that when the Food and Drug Administration comes out with a review of these uh, the data on these different vaccines that are going through phase three trials now, that the, the FDA is allowed to do their job and they're you know, essentially without political interference because otherwise, as I said, the whole effort will backfire and essentially end up with a situation where the public doesn't trust the results of the vaccine trials and therefore you get fewer people wanting to get the vaccine, which obviously is sorely needed for us uh, to try to move forward and try to uh, sort of limit the further spread of this virus. Mm. Well, I wonder your thoughts on the data that you've seen so far on the vaccines in the lead um, and and how well you expect they might work and and how safe and tolerable they look like they might be. Of course, we won't know until the phase three trials, but I'm just kind of struck by the fact, especially having just read your book and, and seeing how long these things can take sometimes and how imperfect the first shots sometimes are. You described some shots that you and colleagues had to take that could give you a fever for a few days, make you feel like you had the disease itself. Of course, these aren't vaccines that the rest of us have to take because we're not working with these scary pathogens. Um, But, you know, Dr. Fauci said at the beginning, it might take 12 to 18 months to have a vaccine. And it actually seems like that goal might be met, which has never been done before. Everything seems to be going right here. So are there shoes that are going to drop? I mean, how are you looking at what you've seen so far? Well, it's hard to say, you know, uh, as I like to say, despite all our optimism and lots of money put forth, we still don't have an HIV vaccine, uh, you know, how many years now? We're 40 years since the sort of the early parts of the HIV uh, pandemic. And, and uh, it took us about 50 years to get a licensed vaccine for Ebola. So there's never any guarantees. I do think the data I've seen and the data that reports out about some of the early uh, vaccine trials looks good in that we're seeing, you know, high percentages of people with, um, you know, neutralizing antibodies and some type of response to the vaccines. So I think those, and it appears to be safe, you know, people have sort of the typical side effects you'd expect with vaccines. You know, sometimes people will have uh, minor fever or, uh, you know, sore arm, things like that, body aches. But uh, I think it's, I'm hopeful uh, but, you know, until we really get the vaccine out and in large numbers of people, so the big trials now are looking at 30,000 people or so, uh, until you really get it out in the field, despite having antibodies, that doesn't necessarily mean that translates to protection. Certainly, it is hopeful 
and, and it uh, presents us some good, some, you know, essentially optimism for, for the trials, but it's not proof. And so it's really important not only that we have these field trials to demonstrate that the, the vaccines actually do work in, in real life, but, but the other thing is uh, I do think, especially with some of these vaccines that are using brand new technology, using uh, messenger RNA as the sort of the vaccine construct, uh, it's very important because we don't have any previous experience with these in large numbers of people. I think it's very important that the safety aspect of these uh, vaccines be tested in large numbers of people so that we can reassure the public that yes, these not only do these work, but they are safe for you and we can stand by them 100%. And I think that's very important. And sometimes you don't see the, the sort of smaller percentage of individuals with rare side effects until you do large trials. If you think about 30,000 is your representative for you know over 200 million people, well, you want to make sure you're looking for these rare events because they can be amplified once you give it to much larger populations. Absolutely. And then, of course, if we are lucky enough to get a vaccine or multiple vaccines that appear safe and protective, we have to then do this unprecedented rollout to millions of people at the same time. Um, and in one place in your book, you discuss an effort to vaccinate more than 500,000 military personnel against smallpox. And you describe that logistical effort as, quote, in short order, the military did what it does best. Um, and we know, of course, that the military is involved in Operation Warp Speed at the top levels. So how do you anticipate uh, that will affect th this rollout and this extreme logistical challenge we're now facing? Well, I think you're right, Meg. The military, actually, if it does anything well, one of the things is logistics in terms of on time, on target, or getting things anywhere in the world. So I think, I do think, actually, the the biggest challenge really is getting a vaccine that we're convinced actually works. I think, you know, there's been a lot of money, millions of dollars put forth already in trying to shore up the logistics aspect in terms of, you know, fill and finishing the vaccines once we have good vaccines. So I think that's probably by the time we get around to having a vaccine or vaccines we think are going to work and are safe, I think that will probably be not as big an issue in terms of, you know, trying to shore up those uh, logistic tails. But certainly you're right. I think getting it out to the population, you know, I don't know how the government's going to do it, but uh, and it probably it'll roll out uh, more to targeted populations first where either they're folks on the front lines, whether it's healthcare providers or, uh, or uh, some folks in crowded, uh, you know, areas where there's no ability to social distance or maybe even uh, the most vulnerable populations in places like nursing homes or or others like that. So I think it may be rolled out in a targeted fashion initially to smaller uh, percentage of individuals before a national effort. And actually, that would probably be a smart way to do it because then you get to see where the kinks are in the logistics uh, chain such that you can get that perfected before you roll it out to much larger uh, group of individuals across the country. Mm. Well, and my last question for you, I, I want to ask you to kind of look ahead. One of the things that you say at the end of your book is that, quote, we suffer the curse of always preparing for the last war, that all of these outbreaks from Ebola to Zika to the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS or the first SARS should have shown us that Mother Nature's a very efficient bioterrorist, as you put it. Um, this, of course, came out before this pandemic began, um, but it was obviously prescient. Are we finally going to break out of 
preparing for the last war, do you think? Will we actually shore up what's needed to be able to face what could be an even worse pandemic down the line? People say this might not even be the biggest of the big ones. Well, Meg, I like to be optimistic and like to hope that we learn these things. I think, uh, unfortunately, we generally have short memories, but I, I'm hopeful this this one has been has caused such a great impact both economically and just, uh, you know, across people's lives. My hope is that we do learn from this and do things better the next time. And we do consider that next time it may have nothing to do with another coronavirus. Maybe it'll be something completely different, completely unexpected. Maybe it'll be a bioterrorism event like we had in 2001 with the anthrax laters. Uh, maybe something else. Uh, maybe it'll be combined events, uh, you know, uh, with some national, um, you know, you can have what we talk about complex humanitarian emergencies and public health in, in various places around the world. Maybe there'll be some natural disaster that's combined with some type of pandemic. So I think the bottom line is shoring up our public health uh, organizations, reinforcing our supply chains, and thinking outside the box about what are the disasters that can happen as you're even trying to respond and trying to, you know, I think that's the best way forward. And uh, I think the other challenge, of course, is having the money applied to it, because obviously there's lots of priorities in the federal government, state government, local government. And so do you, how do you have uh, ensure that in the future you do have these things funded? Uh, because, that, you know, without funding, things sort of, sort of dry up and you, you sort of go back to square one, starting all over again. I hope that's not the case. So I'm, I'll, be, I'll say I'm optimistic but I'm also realistic, uh, things may not go the way I'd like. That was Dr. Mark Cordepeter, professor of epidemiology at the University of Nebraska and author of the book Inside the Hot Zone, a soldier on the front lines of biological warfare. He and I spoke on September 2nd, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. The keynotes produced by the CNBC events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can join us, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care, and thanks for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.